This morning's Bible reading is from Romans chapter 8, verses 31 to 39. It's from the NIV version. That's Romans chapter 8, verses 31 to 39. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Looking back to my intern year in 1992 at the Queen Elizabeth Hospital, it was a restless conscience that kept bugging me that the moral inconsistencies were mounting up, that seeing people die in front of me, it was disturbing me, that there had to be more to life than my career, more to life than accumulating money and stuff, and more to life than holidays and the pursuit of my happiness. It was while sitting in a little office in the middle of Ward 2B, after coming off a night shift, it was after I'd handed over patients to the day registrar, that I shared with her about this restlessness within. Uh, the Reg had been my first boss as an intern. She came out and said, well, the last thing I expected. I'm a Christian. I think life is all about Jesus. She recommended I try out her church, Holy Trinity, at 7pm, so I could explore the truth of Jesus for myself. Well, I did. I went. And I spent the next four months investigating the truth of Jesus' life, death and resurrection from the Bible. And I became convinced over those four months, not only by the weight of historical evidence for Jesus, but as I read through the gospel biographies of Jesus, the Holy Spirit convicted me of my sin, convicted me of the judgment I deserved from God. But most importantly, I was convicted and overrun by God's love for me in sending his son, Jesus, to die for my sin. And so in August 1992, I took up Jesus' offer of forgiveness and I began to experience the joy of my conscience being cleansed of sin's guilt and shame. King David is the author of that psalm we heard read out earlier, Psalm 32. He knew firsthand just how sweet the blessing of God's forgiveness is. He writes, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the person against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. Well, like King David, I can honestly say there is no greater blessing we can know each day 
than that your sins really are forgiven by God and that you are truly forever his. Now, it doesn't mean I still don't sin and stuff up, but there really is no sweeter way to live life than knowing God's forgiveness will never, ever run out, that God's actually really got hold of me and won't ever let go. Do you know the peace and joy of a clear conscience? So if you were to die tonight and you just had a few last words, could you honestly say that, yes, my conscience is clear, I'm not ashamed, I'm not afraid, I am ready to meet my maker, Jesus. Now our conscience is that part of us, that voice inside that whispers, well, I knew it was the right thing to do. Oh, I feel awful about what I said. I wish I could unsend that email that I wrote in anger. Oh, what am I thinking? That's just not me. I can't believe I did it again after promising myself that I wouldn't. Your conscience is your soul's satellite dish to God. It's like God's whistleblower within us to get our attention. God's divine tuner to help conform us to the likeness of his son. As a wise pilgrim said, a clear conscience makes everything in life taste sweeter. It can even sweeten times of trouble. Now whether or not you call yourself a Christian... This is God's offer to you this morning from Romans chapter 8. Believe God's soul cleansing, no condemnation gospel, and know the sweet, sweet joy of your conscience being cleansed of sins, guilt and shame forever. Now as we turn to Romans chapter 8, it's been described as God's highest mountain of grace in a mountain range of grace. It's the Apostle Paul celebrating the God-given assurance that any believer in Jesus can have because of Jesus' death on the cross for them. Paul wants us to know that not even our ongoing struggles with sin or the pressures that come from suffering can separate us from the love of Jesus. We're guaranteed of receiving eternal life when we die. Now this is no academic exercise for Paul. Paul's got some skin in the game. Once a persecutor and murderer of Jesus' followers, Jesus saved Paul to be his own messenger to the nations. But more than this, Paul knows intimately himself the ongoing struggle we have with sin. All believers, how it's a struggle to live under the reign of God's grace in Jesus. And Paul says this in Romans chapter 7, For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want to do, I, it's what I keep on doing. <laughs> Can you hear his struggle? Perhaps you know this struggle with sin in your own life, of temptation getting the better of you, a hurtful word spoken in anger, a lie told to get what you want, the struggle to be generous. You're more grumpy than grateful to those around you. Those secret fetishes and habits that you just feel powerless to change. Well, God's invitation is to know the power and the peace of his inexhaustible mercy and forgiveness for you in Jesus. As Paul goes on to say in Romans chapter 7 and beginning of chapter 8, Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord, for there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. As we heard, it's this no condemnation gospel that Paul returns to here at the end 
of chapter 8 as second Bible reading. Look with me, verses 31 to 34. Three questions, three rhetorical questions. If God is for us, who can be against us? That's the first question there. Verse 31, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? That these things are the many benefits of being a Christian that Paul has already outlined for us in those first eight chapters of Romans. Paul wants Christian believers to know that all of God really is for all of us. That word for it often means on behalf of or in place of. How do we know that God has and is acting on behalf of Christian believers? How can we be sure there's not some clause that means we could miss out? Look with me at verse 32. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? God didn't hand over someone else's son. Our Father in heaven delivered up his own son for you and me. Six weeks ago, a beautiful grandson was born to Jamie and Aisha. Ari Dean is our first grandchild. Now, it's incomprehensible that I might give him up for any reason. But how much more, Jamie and Aisha? As I think about my own son, it's incomprehensible that I could even imagine delivering him up to save another human being. But how much more if that person had spent their whole life ignoring my existence, living in enmity with myself and my son? How for us all is God the Father? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. It's not like it was good people that God gave his own son up for either. Now it was for rebel sinners, for Jesus haters, liars, adulterers, murderers, just like King David, and in fact, just like the Apostle Paul, and just like you and me. As Paul says in Romans chapter 5, Christ died for the ungodly. Now, very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, if God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit have done this, verse 32, how will God not also with Jesus give us all things? How will God not make good on his promises to ensure that we really do make it safely home to heaven? Now, important clarification here. Nowhere in the Bible does God say that these all things include fame or fortune or fantastic health in this lifetime. Nowhere is the Christian promised that he or she will be spared suffering or persecution or famine or worse. Now, more on this next week. Now, the all things are forgiveness of sin things. Every spiritual blessing we have in Christ Jesus things. The joy and peace of a cleansed conscience. They're resurrection life things. They're being raised to be with Jesus forever things. The Father delivering up his only Son for us is all of God, all in commitment, guaranteeing eternal life to Jesus' followers. Well, that brings us to this second question that Paul now focuses more on that day at the end of history when every human being will appear before Jesus. Verse 33. 
Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. It is God who justifies. Who will bring any charge? Now, this is courtroom language, isn't it? It's as if here we are, it's the last day, and we are standing in God's courtroom, in heaven's courtroom. And what is Paul asking? Well, who will bring a charge into God's courtroom against Christians, against Jesus' followers on that future day of judgment? Just imagine, there you are, standing before Jesus. You've lived trusting in Jesus. Is it possible that someone could find some last-minute piece of evidence that could condemn you or I? A charge that meant, rather than being received into heaven, you and I actually refused entry and cast into hell. Now, who is the who here? Who are the voices in the Bible who can bring a charge and do bring charges, or try to at least, against God's people? Well, there's the whisper of our own conscience, uh, the record sheet of our own sin. And then there's the voice of other unbelievers, people who have lived their life against God and against God's people. But then there's also the voice of Satan, uh, the accuser, God's adversary and heirs, the devil, the father of lies and deceit. And what does Paul say? Well, actually, it doesn't matter who it is or what the charge is. It's because it's God who justifies. It is God who justifies. You see, God the judge, he sent his own son to be our stand-in, to be our advocate, to take up all of our sin, to pay the penalty you and I deserve for our sin. And Jesus paid sin's penalty decisively and completely when he died on his cross. It's God who justifies. And because God's justified verdict for a Christian has already happened at Jesus' cross in history at Calvary, it's a justified verdict that will be realized and revealed to all creation when Jesus returns at the end of this world's history. Now, Paul's not finished. He really wants to show us just how watertight God's case is for us, that there really is and can never be any condemnation for those who are in Christ. Brings us to that third question. If God is for us, who is to condemn? If God is for us, who is to condemn? I mean, Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who was at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Now, we already know the answer to the question. It doesn't matter who, because no charge can ever stick. As Paul goes on to say, for Christ Jesus, God's only son, he is the one who died. More than that, who was raised from the dead. And Paul writes in Romans chapter 4, verse 25, that he was raised for our justification. Jesus' resurrection, it happened in the public marketplace of history. It's God declaring in Christ's resurrection that he has indeed paid the penalty for all our sin at Christ's death for those who believe. But even more than this, Jesus has ascended to God's right hand in heaven, where he's received all authority in heaven and on earth over all people for all time. So in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, we read that he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, after making purifications for sin. What is our Lord and Saviour doing at God's right hand? 
Well, he's not just sitting there, twiddling his thumbs or kicking back. Now, every minute of every day, Jesus is interceding for us. He's interceding as God's mediator between humanity and God. Jesus is the ultimate high priest who has gone ahead of us into heaven's throne room, into the very presence of God. And so as we read in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 15, Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant between people and God, so that those who are called by God may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Those who are called by God will receive the promised eternal inheritance. Well, just as we finish, let's think about how we might apply God's gospel assurance for us. And Jesus is like the ultimate divine avenger with all power and authority in the universe over life and death and everyone. He's more than conquered your sin. He's more than conquered your death. That's sin's wage. He's more than conquered any personal power to be closed with Jesus' righteousness is to be ever made bulletproof to any charge ever sticking. And so whether it's voices out there or, or the whispers of our conscience in here, or the devil trying to deceive and accuse you, you need never ever fear these voices if you're a believer in Christ. Let me see if I can illustrate in Job chapters 1 and 2, Satan enters God's presence a couple of times to bring a charge against Job, or he tries to. Now let's imagine a similar scene for a Christian believer on that last day. Let's, um, there's Anton and Olivia standing before Judge Jesus. They both lived and died trusting in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sin. And along comes Satan. And he says, oh, come on, Jesus, look at that Anton. It's outrageous that you're accepting him. I mean, he's, he's such a sinner. And don't get me started on that Olivia. And Jesus replies, yes, every charge is true. Satan starts to smugly smile. and Perhaps by now Anton and Olivia are just starting to feel. But then Jesus silently holds out his hands and he shows his feet and Jesus says look at these scars my hands and feet were pierced for Anton and Olivia's sin I was delivered up by my father on their behalf the wage Anton and Liv deserve for their sin is death yes but I have paid that wage in full for both of them. I have died Anton's death for all his sin. I have died Liv's death for all her sin. They each lived and died trusting in me for the forgiveness of their sin. And so I am justified in declaring Anton and Olivia justified, not guilty. Anton and Liv they are my brother and my sister. They've been adopted by my Heavenly Father into our family. They have the seal of the Holy Spirit upon them. They belong to me. 
How dare you accuse one of my own? Your charges have no place here. You have no place here. Away from me. And with these same outstretched arms, God will one day welcome Anton and live home to be with him in eternity. Now friends, this is why Anton and Olivia, as Christians, can live now with the sweet, sweet joy of a cleansed conscience knowing Jesus really has paid it all. Now friends, so can any of us. And that's the assurance of, that God is offering to any and all who choose to live and die, trusting in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Saviour. It's great news, isn't it? We finish where we began. Do you know the peace and joy of a clear conscience? You see, if you were to die tonight, and you just had a few last words, could you say, honestly, my conscience is clear, I'm not ashamed, I'm not afraid, I'm ready to meet God, my maker? Now, if that's not you, well, God's invitation is to come to Jesus. Do it today. Please don't delay. Like the prayer I prayed all those years ago in 1992, Merciful Heavenly Father, I'm so sorry for my sin. Thank you for sending Jesus to die for my sin. I want to take up your offer of forgiveness for my sin. Please will you wash my conscience of sin's guilt and shame. Please will you help me to love your word and, and to live out your word from now on. Friends, is your conscience clear? Is it time to invite Jesus into the driver's seat of your life? so that you too can begin living the rest of your life, knowing that all of God is for all of you all of the time, that it really doesn't matter who is against you, for you will have God on your side, bringing you home to himself in heaven. For there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things?